Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 11. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you. All of them brand new stories written just for this program from author Wentz Hesselman about malevolent memories, deadly dolls, chilling charades ravenous religions. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now... It's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Ha ha ha!
After a very bad day, Grant Bateman found himself comfort in the bottle. However, when his sister suggests he go and take care of his elderly father, he will discover, in our first tale from Wentz Hesselman, that some days are worse than others. Without further ado, I present to you Storm of Tears. First, Grant Bateman found out that he'd lost his job. He showed up to work and was told to clear out his desk. When he got home, he found his wife in a flurry of activity that looked a lot like packing her things. She told him that she was pregnant. She also told him that she was leaving that day to move in with the father. Grant didn't remember much after that. He recalled seeing Double and staggering his way to the bedroom as the front door of the house slammed shut with a note of finality. He collapsed onto the bed, partially made it underneath the covers, and plummeted into sleep. He awoke several times, unsure if it had been hours or days. A few times he had one of those half-dreams about being late to work. Then he remembered that he didn't have a job to be late to, and he dozed off again. His childhood eventually bled through, and he found dreams about being back at home. There was the iron shadow that was his father. He never really dreamed about his mother. The more the years wore on, the more she was just a face that flashed across his mind. In his dreams, she was little more than an unoccupied mask, a hole in the sand of his psyche that filled with water at high tide. There was the inevitable moment when he woke up and he couldn't get back to sleep, caught between a full bladder and bowels at critical capacity. The trip to the bathroom felt like a mountain hike. He shivered like he was spiking a fever. He fell onto the toilet, and he thought about Bilbo Baggins and the dwarves riding their barrels down the river as he let loose everything he had. Fragments of his dreams started to bob up in the back of his eyes. Not concrete images, but the whispers of them, like stale old flavors that ride up with belches. The trip back to bed was exhausting, and the empty stomach by itself wasn't enough to keep him awake. It was out cold again. He was back to the undreams, as if watching a television set with a cracked screen. Actually, that's what he was doing. He blinked hard at the ruined set. Static filled the screen beneath webs of ruined glass. He looked around and saw that he was sitting in the skeleton of an easy chair that was resting on the rickety planks of a wooden floor. There must have been a house standing there at one point, but it was gone. The sky was where the roof should have been. A few splintered boards hinted at where walls had been, lined up like broken cornstalks after the harvest. He squinted at the countryside glowing in the late sunlight. The blue sky was starting to turn colors. He faced a shaded side of several buildings, a house, one that was intact, a barn. He heard the distant voices of animals, a lone goat, then the reply of a cow, a child's giggle. There was a woman's voice. Dinner! Dinner's ready! 
Wind chimes swelled to life from somewhere as a cool breeze picked up. He was about to get out of the chair when he was startled by the sound of knocking. It was coming from the floorboards directly beneath his chair. Then he was wrested from the dream by the sound of real banging. Someone was beating down his door. He tried to ignore it, but the longer he waited, the more insistent the knocking became. Then a female voice shouted his name. Could his wife have changed her mind? Under the force of a thin hope, he made his way to the door and he opened it and found himself staring into the shocked and concerned face of his disgustingly successful sister, Megan. She looked at him with a mixture of alarm and relief. I've been calling you for weeks and you never picked up. Then I got a message saying that your number is no longer in service. What's going on? He was about to ask her what she meant when he saw a line of sight go past him and her face went pale. He turned around and saw a scene that he couldn't explain. Last he knew, he had decided to lay down for an extended nap, but the house behind him was utterly trashed. The last memory in his mind of the kitchen was him getting out some of the beer in the bottom of the fridge and setting it on the dining table. Now dishes were strewn everywhere, including the floor. Takeout boxes looked like stones from ancient ruins. Food covered the floor, the table, the chairs, and the walls in broad and messy smears. More wine bottles than he ever remembered having in the house at once were everywhere, some of them cemented in place by smeared food. Beer cans were lined up in places like steadfast soldiers. A few flies sang together, punctuating the silence. Fragments of memory returned to him. The walks down to the convenience store for booze. Mostly booze. The phone's incessant ringing. Apparently his sister. But everything else was a blank. How long have you been trying to call me? He said, his voice crackling. A couple of weeks at least. I've been worried sick about you. Where's Kimberly? I couldn't get in touch with her either. She told me she was pregnant with somebody else's baby, and then she left. She told me right after I lost my job. Megan's eyes flashed in comprehension. So, this? She said, gesturing to the destruction behind him. I don't remember any of it. All I remember is sleeping and going back to sleep and using the bathroom. Shock and pity mingled in her expression, but he could also see the gears turning in her head, which was rarely good. Grant, you can't afford this place by yourself, and it doesn't look like you're going to try to either. He shook his head. I'll find a way to get back on my feet. I don't need charity, I just... I just need to catch my breath. Grant, I'm having a hell of a time looking after Dad. He immediately rolled his eyes and groaned. And he realistically needs to have someone with him around the clock. I can't do it with a family and all, and you. I'm not going back there. I need a place to land right now until you get your head together. Come on, I'm in charge of Dad's finances. I pay the utilities and everything with his money. 
You shouldn't have to do anything or pay for anything. Just make sure he doesn't bust his head open in the tub or wander off the property and make sure he eats. I'm serious. He went looking for one of his war buddies that died 15 years ago. Police found him in the woods. He thought they were soldiers coming to shoot him. It was the first time Grant had seen his father since he left home when he was 16 years old. He could see the man he remembered in the washed-out eyes, but the gaze was vacant. The old man, Emmett, remembered who Grant was, but he talked to him like he was still a child. Grant punished himself by waiting for a moment of clarity from his father. He expected that any moment he would look around, realize what year it was and how old his children were, and give Grant the most satisfying admittance of fault that he could manage. Neither moment ever came. The old man was lost someplace where time and guilt couldn't find him, and Grant hated him for it. Buried memories, born of trauma, reached through the ground like the waking dead. He remembered certain angles at which he saw that kitchen table when he got certain bruises across his cheek, across his back. The sting of slaps and the deep ache of blows. And the child, Grant, would open his eyes after the strike and see the kitchen table or the stove and the memory was set ready to be rediscovered like bricks from an ancient civilization. Something told Grant that his father's knuckles never stung in reliving those moments. No ghost of Christmas past, no specter of remorse pushed those things back into his consciousness as he steadily sank into the deep, blissful peace of a vegetable. No wonder Megan doted on her father so much. She never got the rough handling that Grant did, he never figured out why. He, more or less, figured that his crime was being a boy. The younger Emmett had a bad preoccupation with women, but he must not have been one of those dads. Not with the way Megan kept looking after him. Emmett spent most of his days sitting at the kitchen table staring at whatever was in front of him, either a newspaper or a cup of coffee. The only thing missing was the house plant. No, wait. The old man was the house plan. Time wore on in days with no measured beginning or end, just the way it had when he was a boy. One day, Grant went outside to get some fresh air. He tottered around the yard with his hands in his pockets and his chin bouncing off of his chest as if walking around a cemetery. So many years so many years he spent pacing that same soil, counting the seconds until he'd be able to leave and never look back. So many years he didn't understand that one quick phone call to the police would have ended his suffering. But no, he'd never been filled in on the fact that there's nothing abnormal about an abusive alcoholic. So many years he spent distancing himself from the place physically and mentally. So many years, his only getaway was out here, with the animals that used to fill up the stables, with the little bit of garden that his mother entrusted to him. Something about the plants and the soil helped him, soothed him, created distance inside of him between his soul and his soulless father. That was one of the things he remembered about his mother, her way with plants, whether they were for eating or just for blooming, 
When she wasn't hurt, she was outside. Dad didn't like to come outside back then. He certainly didn't like to go near the barn. Well, no. He did go out there to drink from time to time. But one day he stopped and never went out there again. The child, Grant, picked up on that and tried to make the barn his hiding place. Then he found out real quick why Dad never went out there. Then he was too afraid to hide out there, even when his dad was in another drunken stupor looking for someone to vent his rage on. There was something out there he couldn't explain. He just knew that it was terrifying. The barn was the only part of the property that didn't seem to have changed at all. Everything else had aged or shifted in some other respect, but the barn was as unchanged as a snapshot. Grant shuddered and tried not to look at it, but he found himself throwing glances at it. He tried to focus on the ground. Now that Dad wasn't really supposed to leave the house, he could take up gardening once more. Why not go back to what worked? Gardening helped him cope with bad luck before. It could help again. He knelt down and pulled out a clump of scraggly grass from the hard-baked soil. Then he pulled another, and another. He got absorbed in the activity, just like he did as a child. He was so focused, he didn't notice the dark clouds that veiled the sun. He barely registered the thunder that rolled in from the horizon. The breeze blew several degrees cooler, and birds sang out an alert. There was lightning, but he didn't pay any mind. A few isolated drops kissed the back of his neck. He still took his time. What finally made him stand, bowled upright and clench his teeth, and begin sweating had nothing to do with the storm. It was a sound that he had buried deep down along with all those unfortunate years of being a boy to a man like Emmett for a father. Hearing that sound, then, made his body respond the exact same way it had when he heard it in childhood. He had dreaded hearing it at night. It came from the barn, a wailing, a mourning, a fountain of agony so grievous and so deep that there just wasn't enough air in the lungs to fully jettison all the pain. It was the one thing he had feared to hear more than he feared hearing his father raise his voice. He stole away to the house and went inside his room. He was taken aback at just how shaken up he was. If he hadn't felt like he was going back to being a helpless child before, that awful noise sealed the deal. He eventually figured out that he only heard it when it rained, and he had some flashes of bravery when he tried hiding in the barn when the weather was clear. But he could feel the weight of something unnatural out there. Something wrong. Something unsettled and angered and restless. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. For a while, he fooled himself into believing that it was the way the wind whistled inside the barn. But no matter how creative you are, 
There's no way to explain how wind can sob. He tried to take comfort in the fact that the sound only ever came from the barn. She can't leave the barn. She can't leave the barn. He muttered to himself in a strained voice that was more child than adult. It had been his mantra every single day. And there he was, clinging to it like a tattered teddy bear. Underneath his blind fear, he felt even more ruined. A grown man that had spent his life building a tower of mental refuge, shaken down to rubble, exposing the child to hunker down inside, rocking back and forth. And rock he did, until something reached him that made him freeze. Above the din of rain, he could hear that infernal crying inside his room. That had never happened before. Beads of sweat pearled on his forehead in an instant, and he shivered hard. He prayed that the rain would come down harder and drown out the sound. Yeah, that was it. The rain was just too soft. Nothing had changed. The sound wasn't any closer. There just needed to be more rain. And his prayer was answered. The drops began to come down in sheets, until the water battering his window became pure white and the sound was as unbroken as static. He felt better. His heart was still racing, but he felt the tension leave his shoulders. Right before the shadows of two dark hands slammed against the glass with fingers splayed out. Long, long fingers. Grant screamed as the palms drummed the glass with the intensity of rain a face congealed from the distortion of rain, the forehead pressed against the glass, and the eyes fixated on Grant, anchoring him in place. The thing's mouth opened, and the wail shook the walls of his room, shook his soul as it tried to duck down in some deep, safe place inside of him where the caustic waters of that terrible howl couldn't leak in. He began to see double again, he could hear his heartbeat loud and clear as the sound of everything else shrank back. He closed his eyes. He must have passed out because when he opened his eyes, he had a migraine and a terrible thirst. The storm was gone, and so was the screaming apparition. Grant wanted a stiff drink more than he wanted his next five minutes of oxygen. There was a hammer in his skull that wouldn't let up. He found among his own belongings a trickle of bourbon in a bottle he had forgotten about. It was just enough to tease his senses with the artificial release of indulgence, hanging beyond his frayed nerves like a carrot, dangling in front of a hungry donkey. Between the whisper of a buzz and desperation, he had a mind to see if there was anything stronger than water out in the barn, and if there was, he'd be rewarding himself for his courage. He pulled open the junk drawer in the kitchen and there was an old yellow flashlight. He took it. He regarded his father for a moment, who was still sitting at the kitchen table. He had his hands in front of him as if he were reading a newspaper that wasn't there. Bitterness tried to leak in. If ignorance was bliss, then senility must be ecstasy. He shook the flashlight at the barn and continued... He could see that one of the two great doors was slightly open, as if someone could be inside peeking out. 
He felt the old terror bloom inside of him, but he choked it back. His thirst was stronger than his fear. Most of the sky had cleared up, and he could tell that the sun was starting to ride low, but darkness was still a ways away. He had time for what was developing in his mind. Each step toward the barn was like a turn on a volume knob that was wired to his heartbeat. He just shook his head at it, trying to focus on that scant buzz, and plodded steadily toward those doors until he was close enough to kiss them. Cool air breathed on him from between the doors. He clicked on the fluky flashlight and looked around. It looked the same. It smelled the same. Dad must have never set foot in there. He shone the light around until he saw something lying on the rickety floorboards. It was his super soldier action figure. He'd dropped in the last time he'd been out there when he was a boy, when he had seen her there for the first time. That was when he got the idea in his head that she was confined to the barn. That was the only place he had ever seen her. Up until that last downpour, the barn was the only place he had ever heard her. He shone the light around. There was Dad's homemade cabinet, cobbled together with misshapen boards of plywood and nails and hinges. It was a wonder it could ever stand up or the doors would work. The hinges were held together with nails instead of screws, so the inside was more or less an Iron Maiden. The inside was full of husks of rust that had once been paint cans or oil tins. He wouldn't have found a bottle of whiskey if he hadn't lingered on the tall kerosene lantern that was in front of him. Surely he was dreaming. Surely that wasn't an unopened bottle. It was. There was a neighbor just like it with a little bit left, but here was another bottle that had gathered decades of dust untouched. Grant didn't know if whiskey got better with age or not, but he was going to find out. Most of the cork crumbled and fell into the amber liquid, but Grant didn't care. His thirst overpowered his concern over all else, it turned out that aged whiskey didn't get better, nor did it get worse. The harsh aroma of the liquid filled his nostrils, and in that moment it was the most comforting thing in the world. He lowered the bottle to breathe, and he stopped for just a moment. For half a second, he thought that he smelled rain, but he kept sampling the air, and apparently it was just a fluke, because all he could smell then was the musty old barn. The ancient hooch made him shudder a few times. That old stuff had a kick to it. He wanted to chug it. Each nip he took, he swore something around him changed. He'd be damned if he could put his finger on it, though. His view of the world was starting to sway like a ship, and he found that the old barn wasn't so scary anymore. It was great. It was like his own private tavern, he could practically feel the old place wink at him, and he winked back. He drank to his wife. May the bitch be found in a shallow grave by the highway. He drank to his perfect sister, who had somehow charmed the universe into handing her everything from the moment she was born. He drank to twenty-seven years of screwing up, despite his best efforts to erase his old life and create a new one, from the ground up after being buried alive in it. 
He was thinking about taking the first piece of jagged, sharp metal he could find and cutting 27 lines in his body, one for each year of failure. And just like that, there was a knife in front of him. It was in a hand. The hand was attached to a girl who had to have been about six or seven years old. She was smiling even as dark blood ran from a gash in her throat and stained her striped shirt and blue overalls. His throat constricted as he looked into her eyes. He could see it. He didn't recognize the face, but he recognized the eyes. The girl that had beaten his bedroom window, that had screamed and sobbed inside that barn, that had remained the voice of a little girl as he grew into a man. He blinked and she was gone, the terror almost perfectly suppressed by his intoxication. It wasn't enough to filter out a cheap jump scare. The barn door clattered open, and there was his father staggering inside like he used to. He wasn't an old man anymore. He was young and robust like Grant. He grasped a bottle of whiskey much like the one his son was holding. The smell of rain wafted inside. Grant's inebriated father pulled up a wooden bar stool, bald of any cushioning, and slumped on it. His lips moved fish-like against the bottle, and the potent liquid ran down the corners of his mouth. Before too long, a little boy and a little girl ran inside the barn, chasing each other. Emmett barked a syllable that was probably supposed to be Grant. The boy had run off before his father could fully form the word. The girl remained. Something about the barn floor fascinated her. Something about the girl fascinated Emmett. He got up and shut the barn doors. There was no buzz that could suppress the dread welling up inside Grant as he watched. But he blinked again, and the scene had mercifully changed. There was the ruined body of the little girl lying limp on the floor. There was Emmett holding a knife, while the other hand was trying to pull up his pants. He produced an axe and a shovel, and gracelessly hacked up several boards in the barn and lifted them up. He tried to set about digging, but gave up after only a few shovelfuls. The dirt was only falling between the boards, and even in his state, he could tell the time wasn't on his side. So he just tucked the girl's body in the hole he had made and laid the boards back in place. Their splintered and ruined edges screamed that they were witnesses to something awful. Emmett took an old rug and dragged it over the boards and piled some random detritus on top. Grant became aware that he was alone in the barn again. His buzz held, but it was subdued, thanks to a shade of shock-induced sobriety. He struggled to remember the girl. For everything he was stuck with remembering about the barn... He couldn't recall anything about the girl. He perceived that he was no longer hallucinating, and there the complicit rubble heap sat. He set the bottle down unsteadily and began taking things off the pile and tossing them. Bricks, cinder blocks, boards. There was the rug. He moved it. There were the ruined boards. The sight of them made him swallow hard. Emmett was sitting at the kitchen table when Grant came through the door. 
Done any digging in the dirt? Any gardening? Grant? Grant deposited something in front of his father. A knife. Between Grant's drunkenness and his father's senility, he couldn't tell if the old man recognized the murder weapon or not. He certainly stared at it for a long time. How'd you find that? He finally said, I did some digging in the dirt, Dad. Moore staring at the blade. His father opened his mouth to speak when he was interrupted by the most violent clap of thunder Grant had ever heard. It rocked the house like an earthquake, and the lights blew out, their glass singing in the darkness. Grant instantly sobered up yet another degree. It shouldn't have been that dark already. He opened the doors again, and the sky was carpeted with the heaviest thunderheads he'd ever seen. And how that thunder roared and rolled from all directions. Grant was soaked in seconds, and yet above the din of it all, he swore he heard his father's voice in the distance. Lightning lit up the yard just in time to show the barn doors slamming shut. He acted before his fear could take hold. He darted over to the barn and went inside. A kerosene lantern from the cabinet was lit and sat on the floor, throwing its rays into the recently exposed hole. Something new was in there. It was the old man, buried up to his neck. One eye was wide open and round, looking straight at Grant. The handle of the knife bloomed from the other eye. The second whiskey bottle from the cabinet was rammed down Emmett's throat. Grant found himself in a similar state to when this all started and when his job and his marriage evaporated right in front of him. He didn't feel any substantial loss over his father. There was some whiplash in the way that his deeds caught up with him, sure, but Grant was in no hurry to call the coroner. It crossed his mind to tell Megan that Dad wandered off again and leave it at that. The silence of the house was heavier than ever, and yet the place seemed to have less weight. Some unseen loose end was tied off. Grant lay in the dark, staring at the way the rain threw itself against the window. It had let up quite a bit. I wish I could remember you, he said to the glass, and I'm sorry. But there was no answer, no acceptance, no denial. He reached over to the dark shape of the whiskey bottle and shook it. There was a substantial slosh. Maybe he'd get around to it before falling asleep. Maybe not. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I hope you enjoyed Storm of Tears, as written by author Wentz Hesselman and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Wentz. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Wentz, spelled W-E-N-T-Z. That'll direct you to the author's profile on our official horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com. From there, you'll find links to the author's social media pages, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and a way to contact him if you'd like to drop him a line or say thanks. Also, if you enjoyed Wentz's work featured here today, be sure to check out his latest project, the Lore Hall Library Podcast. You can listen to it weekly on six different platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Or visit his show on Facebook at fb.me slash lorehall.library. There you'll find the latest updates and links to listen. If you do decide to check out either of those links, be sure to tell Wentz that Otis sent you and that you heard about him on this program. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. A missing sister, presumed dead, a bully who doesn't know when to quit, and something in a cornfield that offers answers. In our second tale of the evening, Wentz Hesselman introduces us to a fellow who offers a good deal, but may end up having you grasping at straws. Without further ado, I present to you the Scarecrow's Mausoleum. Gabriel Larson walked up to Colby Pittman on the playground at recess and kicked him square in the nuts. The heavy-set, bug-eyed redhead crumpled to the ground. Then Gabriel kicked him in the stomach with the force of a raging bull. Nobody stopped him. Everyone just sort of watched. Everyone except one of the supervisors. She had old lady hands and bat-wing arms, but she was strong The two boys were promptly dragged to the principal's office. Mr. Ford's thick beard couldn't hide the fact that he was frowning. He looked at them over the top of his thick-rimmed glasses and waited for some kind of explanation. "'Well, Mr. Larson,' he pushed. Gabriel dropped the note on Mr. Ford's desk. "'It says it's from my sister, but it's his handwriting.' Mr. Ford heaved a sigh at the note and read it aloud, stumbling over the horrible penmanship. Dear Gabriel, my big brother, I am in hell. It's very hot here, 
It hurts so much. I must have been a very bad little slut to end up in hell. You'll be here soon, too, and you'll deserve it. Love, your dead retarded sister, Haley Larson. Mr. Ford pinched the bridge of his eyebrows. And you surmise that this was written by Mr. Pittman here. My sister never talked that stupid, Gabriel said. He felt an unusual mixture of laughter, anger, and grief whirling up into his head and pushing forth tears. You can't prove it, Colby said. I really shouldn't say this, but I've seen Mr. Pittman's handwriting enough to know that this probably is his. But that doesn't justify what you've done to him today. He has bruised ribs. That's what he gets for making fun of my sister. He held up a hand before continuing. Yes, his behavior was abhorrent, but so was yours, Mr. Larson. Yeah? Well, at least he gets to live. My sister doesn't. Mr. Ford regarded the youth like he was unsure if he should reprimand him or apologize. He then folded his glasses and set them on his desk without a click. He buried his face in his palms and massaged his forehead with his fingertips. When I was eleven, like you, I lost my grandfather. I know that's not the same as losing a sister, but hear me out. When word got around at school, the worst of the worst wouldn't let me live in peace. Kids that I didn't even know the names of were hounding me over my grandfather's death. They didn't know me either, and they especially didn't know my grandfather. And there they were, making fun of him, of me. It was incredible. Those kids didn't end up being the criminals and thugs I thought they would. They just went on to join the rank-and-file adults that are running the world. I don't mean to make light of your feelings, but the simple truth is that people are horrible from the moment they're born, and they don't get any better. If you go around kicking in the ribs of everyone that demonstrates how horrible they are, then you'll have a fight on your hands every ten minutes. So are you going to do anything about him or not? Gabriel said evenly. Mr. Ford threw Colby a look. I'll talk to him. I advise you to stay away from him. Gabriel left the principal's office feeling the same way he always had. Empty-handed and disappointed. It made the weight of his sister's memory heavier. Gabriel, Gabriel, she'd say in that annoying, raspy little voice of hers. The kid just couldn't take a hint that she was pesky as hell. All that annoyance he had felt turned to guilt when he couldn't spend another second with her. He'd never hear that little voice again. It wasn't certain that she was dead, but when a child has been missing for so many months and there's no sighting, no word, no evidence of her anywhere, what were they supposed to think? She was just gone. That night he lay in bed, staring up into the darkness, thinking of her. She was never absent, just present in degrees. Gabriel, Gabriel, her voice ricocheted inside his skull. And then he heard her voice right next to his ear. His body reacted with a violent jerk. His eyes flew open. He heard little footsteps pad across his bedroom floor and out the door. He chased the sound, 
He'd know it anywhere. The sound of Haley's bare feet smacking the wood floor. It just had to be her. Haley, he cried out. The footsteps wouldn't relent. The front door opened and shut half a second before he'd reached it. He acted open and flew out into the cool November night, shouting at that point. Haley! Haley! He heard lights flick on upstairs. Mom and Dad came down to check on him. They were caught off guard by their son's wild eyes and his conviction that he had just been visited by their missing child. But their confusion and surprise spiraled down into annoyance. They urged him back to bed, as if all the traumatic memories would lay down and go to sleep with him. He went back to bed, but his stare was as intense as ever. It was when he rolled over on his side and tucked his hand under his pillow that he found it. It was a letter. Dear Gabriel, this is your sister, Haley. Please come pick me up at the corn maze we were at when I bumped my head, remember? I love you very much, and we don't have much time. Please hurry. Love, Haley. Enclosed was a hand-drawn map that was done in crayon on lined notebook paper. He knew which corn maze she was talking about. They hadn't been there for nearly two years. It was just down the country road from where they'd lived. Their house sat on the edge of town. If you walked five minutes one way, you were in civilization. If you walked five minutes in the other direction, you were surrounded by farmland. It was the tail end of November. The fields were bare and desolate. He wasn't willing to fully believe that he had just received a letter from his sister, but he knew those footsteps. And if it was really her, why didn't she stay in the house? Why did he have to go get her? His rational side was working overtime to make sense of it all, but none of that work touched the deep down, the intuitive part of him, that just knew that Haley had reached out to him from beyond some veil she couldn't completely pierce. Gabriel didn't say much to anyone until the weekend when he made a decision. He hoped that he would fall asleep and default on his plans to go looking for a corn maze that had probably been mowed down with the rest of the fields, but sleep fled him. When two in the morning rolled around and his eyes hadn't grown an ounce heavier, he put on his clothes and he went out the front door as silently as a shadow cast by the moon. It was a full moon, and it rode high. The surrounding fields had scattered stalks of corn that gleamed like broken bones in the cold light. He wasn't sure what he would find. Surely the maize had been mown down in the harvest, but no, it was still there. The tall, dense, and mature corn stalks that formed its walls were untouched. He rubbed his eyes, expecting the fog of his breath in the crisp air to wash away the sight of the maze, but there it was, visible and tangible. A girl sat at a worn picnic table that was set up as an admission desk. Hand-painted signs announced prices for exciting fall-themed trinkets and goodies, even though the table was completely bare. The girl's pale skin was made even more pale by the moonlight and her eyes and hair and lips were very dark by contrast. She wore a metal band shirt with wide-legged black denims. She looked up to see Gabriel, and she didn't seem surprised. 
She also didn't appear to care. Hey, he said. You want to go through the maze? She snapped. Well, I got a letter that told me to come here to meet my sister. She's been missing for months, and everyone thinks she's dead, and I... Do you want to go through the maze, yes or no? Yes. Okay. That'll be three dollars. I don't have any money. Fine, give me your hand. Gabriel hesitated a moment before trusting the girl with one of his hands. He was quite the fair-skinned youth himself, but her own hands were much whiter, porcelain even. She tied a hemp wristband around his wrist that felt rather snug and a bit prickly. He furrowed his eyebrows and began to itch at it. There was no sympathy in the girl's gaze. You'll need to put at least three drops in the bowl next to the arch. She pointed to a great arch constricted of hay bales that curved overhead in a majestic feat of rural engineering. Three drops of what? he asked. She just stared at him. He shook his head and approached the arch. Shriveled pumpkins and gourds of mottled, fatal colors sat atop its curve. They weren't cracked into jack-o'-lanterns, and yet somehow their withering surfaces still formed vague visages that stared at Gabriel, and this made the air feel colder. He drew in his breath and nodded to the girl in thanks. He wanted to ask her what she was doing out here in the field, dressed so lightly in the wee hours of the night, but something told him he shouldn't. He looked up at the arch, which seemed to grow in size as it got closer to it. Then he saw it, a weathered wooden bowl surrounded by flickering candles. It sat crooked on the ground. Maybe she meant three drops of candle wax. The candles were the sort he had seen in church. Fat white candles in tall glass jars. He poured three drops into the bowl and proceeded to the maze. It wasn't a complicated maze at all, clearly meant for someone half his age. The exit came up quick. He stepped out into the wide-open, moon-bathed, harvested landscape, feeling apprehension and anger intertwining around his heart. He headed back inside, through the maze exit, readying some aggressive questions for the girl at the entrance. He stopped in his tracks when he heard some sort of abrupt dragging sound behind him. The exit had been sealed behind him. A barrier of corn formed where there had been an opening. He stared dumbly before trying to pass the barrier. It was impossibly dense. He jumped up and down to try and look beyond the leaves and the stalks. He couldn't see anything due to a fog that hadn't been there before. He staved off a wave of anxiety and arrived back at the arch. It was barred with splintered planks studded with rusty nails. His jaw dropped. Before the barrier was the wooden bowl with the church candles. A sharp pain stung his wrist. The wristband had constricted and dug into his skin. Blood flowed in a clean, straight line and started to pool into a trembling bead at the bulge of his wrist. He then understood the girl's ominous words. Three times his dark blood welled up and fell through the rays of the candles into the bowl. Something changed in the air as soon as the third drop thumped against the wood. The wax of the candles had changed from cotton white to crimson. The entire arch shuddered 
as the nail-studded planks retracted upward like a portcullis. He saw before him what could have been mistaken for one of those old wooden corn cribs, only it was much bigger. It felt more like a mausoleum. There was a great central door flanked by carved faces that sat beneath niches where funeral urns sat. The faces, the urns, and the overall bearing of the gigantic structure was grotesque and foreboding. A shiver coiled its way through Gabriel's body, and he wanted to leave what he had discovered behind to go home. Someone must have been listening to his thoughts. The spiked planks thumped back down into the earth behind him. There was no going back. Trembling, he approached the heavy wooden door that had knockers of great rings clenched in the jaws of demonic gargoyles. They were entirely made of wood. The rings made deeper thumps than wood ought to have. Nobody answered. He gave the door a gentle push, and it opened with an awful creak. The interior was utterly dreadful. Gothic chandeliers, decorative suits of hellish armor, niches for candles, visages of fearful howling souls in mirror frames and door jams. It was all wood, and the guttering lights made everything wriggle with life. It seemed to Gabriel to be one big fire hazard. A grand chasm of a hallway stretched in front of him, longer than the buildings outside suggested. There was a low, narrow trough that ran the entire length of the hall. It was filled with black tar-like liquid. It flowed like polluted rainwater in the gutter of a foul street. "'Come in,' echoed a shadowy, whispery voice. Gabriel took a few tentative steps forward, and he jumped as the door slammed shut, nearly hitting him in the back. "'Don't be afraid. You're welcome here. Actually, you've been invited,' came the voice again. Gabriel didn't feel comforted or reassured in the least, not until he saw his sister step out from somewhere into the middle of the hallway. She was wearing the same dress he had last seen her in. "'Haley!' he cried, forgetting his fear. She just leered at him and ran away down the hallway. He gave chase and didn't slow down until he started seeing what was in the hallway with him. There were vaults in those walls, sealed by more bars of nail-studded planks. They weren't empty. Hands and arms hung limp out into the candlelight. A finger would twitch here and there. Gabriel screamed aloud when the chunking black liquid in the channel suddenly looked like oversized centipedes gyrating together. As soon as he saw the shapes of the creatures, it reverted back to being liquid. His heartbeat shook his whole body, but that fleeting sight of his sister drove him onward. Double doors at the far end of the hallway lazed open, allowing more golden light into his view. He thought he saw a wine-red carpet, but he forgot all about it as a far worse sight stole his senses when he reached it. There was Haley standing at attention. The large, long room was lined with wooden cages. Each of them contained a child in rags that vomited a steady fountain of the black liquid. Their eyes rolled in exhausted misery beneath foreheads etched with tired lines. The spurting foulness shapeshifted between the forms of insects and demons and screaming faces 
as it ran down the pedestals holding each cage, where it joined the black stream that ran throughout the building. Haley didn't seem to notice them, or the towering figure next to her that kept one hand on her shoulder. It looked every bit like a scarecrow with a straw hat, overalls, and a burlap bag with stitched eyes and a mouth. Hello, Gabriel. Your sister has been looking forward to seeing you. The thing spoke. The stitches in its mouth writhed with each consonant. You're a scarecrow, Gabriel stammered. More than that, I'm a custodian, the scarecrow said, bowing its head. I'm also very reasonable. I seem to have accidentally ended up with this little treasure. It drummed its fingers on Haley's shoulder. She doesn't belong in a place like this. Her heart is such a good apple. This place is for rotten, wormy hearts. Can she come with me, then? The scarecrow held up a long-gloved finger. There's the issue. I would be delighted to let her go home. But someone needs to take her place. And no, I won't accept you. I see the hero in your golden apple heart that could make that sacrifice. Very touching. No, you need to find me another heart. One with worms, preferably. But any heart will do. Gabriel swallowed hard. The only thing that seemed more unfathomable than willingly bringing anyone to this place to spend eternity behind nail-studded boards was convincing them to... You don't need to persuade anyone. The scarecrow interrupted his train of thought. You'll just have to be sneaky. One large black tar centipede wriggled out of the chamber's wooden channel and scurried toward Gabriel in a winding S movement. It paused just long enough to show Gabriel that its body segments were made of screaming baby faces. He was about to flee when the thing coiled up and shriveled into something small and pale. A corn doll, made from colorless, dry leaves. Take my totem, and give it to whoever you feel is worthy of residency at this fine establishment. Then you can take your precious little apple home. Gabriel blinked at the horrible object. What, what if they won't take it? You're a bright boy. I'm sure you'll find a way of getting it on some lucky winner's person by the deadline. Deadline? Yes. In two days at sundown. Then I'll come for whoever is in possession of it. If I end up coming for you, then I keep you and your sister both. Then I'll have two good apples that don't belong here. What a shameful circumstance that would be. Gabriel was so overwhelmed with digesting the scarecrow's words that he didn't notice the corn doll crawling crab-like up his pant leg. Its grip was sharp like a pinch bug, and a sudden shrieking wind blasted Gabriel off his feet. When he opened his eyes, he was in his bed. The notion that the whole thing had been a dream 
was erased by the sensation of the corndoll's pointed arms and legs anchoring itself into the skin of his stomach. He pulled it off in horror. It moved a bit, then went still, staring at him with a face it didn't have, putting the question to him of what he was going to do next. Day was just breaking, and the sunlight bled through the blinds. It reminded him too much of the candlelight. He sat up in bed and regarded the corn doll as if it were the scythe of the Grim Reaper. It was a tool of judgment, and it was his responsibility. There would be no point in trying to delegate his burden of office to anyone else. Passing the doll on would be an act of damnation. So who could he give the doll to and still be able to sleep at night? The question throbbed in his brain all day at school. Every face he saw, he pictured inside those terrible wooden cages, their eyes shedding solid streams of tears to mingle with the stream of fetid black horrors pouring from their mouths, preventing them from asking the questions of what they did to deserve something so unspeakable if they had ever see their parents, their pets, their own bedroom again. Gabriel's stomach tightened up. He wasn't sure he could do it. He tried being objective. If he would be damned along with Haley if he failed, well, better for one person to suffer in the place of two. It didn't help. His heart really was a good apple. Before he knew it, the school day was about to end, and that meant that he had only one day left. The first one had gotten away from him without a struggle. This backhanded him with a pang of panic. He approached Colby at his locker. The fat red-headed stain breathing was almost as loud as his rough movements with his belongings. His blue eyes went wide when he saw Gabriel approaching. Hey, Gabriel said. Colby said nothing. I kind of want to put everything behind us and be friends. I've got something for you. The bully's eyes probed all over him. His eyes popped for a half second when he saw what Gabriel had in his hand. It was the corn doll. I don't want your sissy baby toys, he said with his false bravado. Why not? It's a gift. Yeah, well, I don't want it. And with that, Colby had turned and walked away with more than necessary speed. Gabriel felt two strange emotions welling up inside of him. One of them was hate, but he also felt something like a smile. An adult might compare it to the warmth felt in a beer buzz. He didn't know where it was coming from, and his conscious mind tried to reject it like a donated kidney and tried to tell him that he didn't like it but a deeper, more primal part of him loved it. The following day, Recess saw the usual explosion of kids out the double doors, and it appeared to Gabriel that Colby had gone out with more than the usual speed and urgency, as if he were eager to get away from something. Colby headed toward the back of the property, far away from the school. Gabriel locked onto him and followed at a fast clip. Colby never turned around, but his pace quickened. He knew he was being followed. That warmth in Gabriel's stomach grew. Colby must have been operating on fear at that point, 
because he was leading Gabriel off into an isolated corner of the school property. That corner where you just weren't sure if you were still on the playground or not. Where there were lots of trees. Gabriel somehow understood that they both knew they were going to be by themselves. This was either going to be a man-to-man chat or a man-to-man fight. You know what this is, Gabriel said. The question was as much of a statement as it was a question. It took Colby a second to turn around and look at him in the eye. His usual bold demeanor was rusted out with reticence and fear. He promised me I could have my real mom back, Colby said. What? He who? You know who I'm talking about. The thing you got that doll from. I only saw kids there. Why would it have your mom? Gabriel said, unsure if Colby would even know what he meant. I saw nothing but people like my mother. Women. He, he set you up for his deal by showing you people that are like who you lost. Gabriel squinted in confusion. I thought I heard that she's the one that used to beat you and your brothers and sisters. Colby's scowl wavered, loosening under the oncoming tears. Screw it, you heard. She's my mom. I love her. It's just the way it is. Who did you give to the scarecrow to trade for your mom? Colby scratched his neck and looked away. I'm really sorry, okay? Look, I wrote those letters because I thought that if I made fun of you for what I had done, it wouldn't bother me so much. The dots were connecting in Gabriel's mind, and he was trying to fight off the picture they were forming. So what wouldn't bother you so much? I didn't know what else to do. I was desperate. I just wanted my mom back, that's all. You gave him my sister. Gabriel said in a voice that sounded like a strangled whine. He prayed that Colby would deny it, but he didn't. You don't get it, Colby muttered. Actually, I do, which is why I'm going to give you the chance to do the right thing. He held out his hand, offering the corn doll to Colby, who looked at him in amazement. You got your mom out of there because you love her, right? So do the right thing and get my sister out of there. That was the first time Gabriel ever saw someone's jaw drop. They're sick. You rescued your mom, now rescue my sister. Do what's right. I'm not rescuing your whore brat sister. Colby didn't have time to catch his breath from his outburst. Gabriel lifted his foot and kicked him square in the sternum, knocking him back into the door of what looked like a burly industrial shed, the kind with a light bulb in a small metal cage above the door. The door had been left ajar, and it swung open wide for the tumbling Colby, whose head rammed into a shelf of paint cans and mason jars. His instincts fired off, and he got to his feet and made a mad dash for the door, which was blocked by Gabriel. Gabriel grabbed the handle of a heavy shovel and brought it up to clock Colby with the sturdy wood. But the inertia knocked both of them back outside. 
Colby landed on top of his assailant, and he sneered down into his face. They grappled for the shovel. Colby might have been the victor if, if he hadn't put so much energy into a great cry of, Help! Help! But it was just enough of a window for Gabriel to wrench the shovel out of his hands and bring the handle across Colby's forehead. Colby woke up unable to move. He was back inside the shed. The shovel was leaned against the wall as if mocking him. He gathered enough strength to thrash and twist against his bonds, but whatever they were, they held fast. He saw a roll of dusty gray duct tape on the floor. He felt tears sting his eyes. The door opened, and Colby briefly hallucinated that it was a policeman. But it was just Gabriel. He had a hard, natural look to him, like a judge. He held the corn doll to Colby's temple, and its little arms and legs dug into his skin like the mandibles of some insect. Tears flowed down Colby's cheeks and down the duct tape that muffled his whimpers. Gabriel regarded this with cold satisfaction, that strange warmth rolling in his belly. But then he noticed something about his prisoner. Where there should have been a bruise on his face from the whack from the shovel, there was flaking skin, flaking and crumbling. He absently picked at it, making a soft, snapping, crinkling sound. Colby winced. The two gazed into each other's eyes, and it was the first time that Gabriel noticed how papery his foe's eyes appeared. He was trying to stave off the idea that his crumbling wound felt much like the corn doll. The hours wore on. The sun started to set. Colby cried for water through his muzzle, but Gabriel just stared down at him. Gabriel was feeling the hydration and exhaustion also, but he stayed the course. He was going to see this through. He winced at everything that sounded remotely like a police siren. He expected that the school grounds would be crawling with law enforcement, and they'd be found out minutes before the scarecrow was due. But no. Nobody came looking for either one of them. The dangling light bulb in the crest of the ceiling flickered. Colby bobbed in and out of consciousness until there was a knock on the door, and it opened on its own accord. Hello, Colby, said a low voice. I had a feeling we'd be seeing each other again. Colby's eyes snapped open with clarity. The scarecrow nodded to the corn doll lodged in the boy's temple like an oversized tick. Gabriel didn't see what happened next. He was standing outside in the cool night air. He saw the scarecrow go inside the shed, but nobody came out. He hesitated, but went to investigate when it had been completely still for too long. The shed was empty. Colby was gone. Duct tape bonds, corn doll, and all. Gabriel wondered if there was going to be any kind of acknowledgement or confirmation from the scarecrow. His conscience was starting to twitch, but that would be easy to ignore if he just knew that his sister was safe and free of that otherworldly crypt. He didn't want to stay on the school property, but he didn't want to go home in the blind fog of uncertainty. What kind of story was he going to use to cover himself? Colby's disappearance was going to be a hot question tomorrow 
when it would be confirmed that he didn't make it home. He stumbled on his way home, unable to think of anywhere else to go. He was hungry and thirsty and utterly spent. He forgot how bad he felt when he saw a short shadow standing outside his home. He could see no details, but he knew. He just knew. He ran up to the figure and described just enough detail to confirm that it was his sister. Haley, he said with renewed strength. She gave him a deadpan gaze just before he swept her up and held her for a long moment. The front door opened, and the outdoor light washed them in pale yellow glow. The first to come out was their mom, masking her face with both hands. Dad followed just behind, open mouth. Haley was nothing like she'd been before. Doctors called it shock and possible trauma. Police couldn't get anything out of her as to where she had been. She talked only a little, stared a lot. It was Haley's face, voice, and body, but the soul, her spark, seemed to be gone. Gabriel hoped against hope that it was only temporary. As the months passed, Gabriel noticed something one morning while looking in the mirror. The skin around one of his cheekbones looked cracked. It flaked off when scratched. His eyes looked like Colby's had, papery. He ran his fingers through his hair. He showered last night, but his hair felt dry, and the rustle it made was just a bit too loud. He fidgeted with his hair all day, getting lost in the sound it made, driving his thoughts that circled like a lazy wind in an empty room. He started seeing movement out of the corner of his eyes when he was alone, false shadows that would evaporate when he looked directly at them. He drank more and more water, but the dryness that was overtaking him would not relent. Haley, or what was left of her, was home. That's all he cared about. He knew deep down that the Scarecrow wasn't just going to let him walk away unscathed, just like the way Haley was still tainted. So, he waited to see what would become of him, as he slowly became, more and more, like a Scarecrow himself. I hope you enjoyed The Scarecrow's Mausoleum by author Wentz Hesselman, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoy the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Wentz. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Wentz spelled W-E-N-T-Z. You'll find yourself on creepypastastories.com and his author profile there, where you can read more about this talented gentleman, check out more of his work totally free, or follow him on several social media sites for his latest updates. And boy, if you thought tonight's tales were terrifying, just imagine what you could find on his Facebook page. Ha 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 ha! Ah, on second thought, that might even be a bit too much for me. Ha 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 ha! Oh, and don't forget to check out the author's podcast, Lore Hall Library, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, 
as well as several other podcast platforms. Or visit the show on Facebook at fb.me slash lorehall.library, where you'll find the latest updates and links to listen. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. It means more to us than you could imagine. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, 
Subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode, and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>